We've kind of said this in the past few weeks, but we've come to a point in Revelation where we have seen the the judgments of God during this seven-year period called the Tribulation. We have seen the seal judgments uh, opened. We have seen the trumpet judgments taking place. And we've come to a place where there is a natural pause in the book where God takes time to introduce characters or people who will come about in the final three and a half years of the tribulation. And um, through, ver- through chapters 11 through 14, God takes a break or takes a, an aside or a pause from the judgments to introduce who these people will be. And um, previously, in, in other weeks, we've heard about this mighty angel in chapter 11 and, uh, or in chapter 10. And then we've also read two weeks ago about the two witnesses uh, who will appear and be evangelist and preach the word of God. Today, in chapter 3, or chapter 12, we, we are introduced to three different characters. The three characters are the woman, her child, and a fiery red dragon. I have to be honest with you, as I'm going through this chapter, as you try and outline this chapter, it's not the most easy chapter to outline because of how much topics and how many uh, years it spans. This chapter spans from the beginning of when Satan fell from God and goes all the way to the, uh, through the end of the Great Tribulation. So this chapter spans such a large part of human history, and it doesn't necessarily give us all the details. It just gives highlight clips of what happens. Um, and so it, in order to kind of get ourselves focused on really what is the key points in order to not get lost in all the events that are taking place, I really just want you to focus on two different things throughout this entire chapter. The first thing is is Satan's attempt to thwart God's plan, Satan's attempts to stop God from fulfilling his purposes throughout history as well as in the future to come. So that's the first thing I want you to think about, Satan's attempt to thwart God's plans throughout history and in the future. And the second thing is God's faithfulness to his word, regardless of the opposition from Satan. Those are the two things I want you to just kind of see as we're going through this chapter. So to briefly summarize that first idea uh, concerning Satan and his attempt to thwart God's plan, uh, we can think about who Satan is and what is he all about, because this chapter is a reminder of the objective that Satan has. Satan's objective has always been, and his desire has always been, to overthrow God, to overthrow his purposes, to overthrow his plans. And especially today, we will see that he will attempt to overthrow God's people, the nation of Israel. Satan has all sorts of devices and schemes and uh, deception that he tries to pull out of his toolbox, but in the end, they all have the same basic purpose, to defeat God, to destroy his plan, and ultimately, he hopes to wipe out his people. And he will attempt to do this no matter what. Satan's plans are to eliminate anyone who claims the name of Christ, anyone who claims him as their savior. And again, we will see this very clearly with the nation of Israel. Um, Satan, his objective, he wants to prevent Christ from coming back and establishing his kingdom, both in the hearts of mankind and on the earth in the millennium. Uh, Since the fall, Satan's plans have always been in opposition to God. His plans have always been, whatever God says will take place, Satan tries to stop that. 
Um, and even though Satan knows the Bible better than we do, even though Satan is thoroughly well-versed in it, um, even though he knows he's headed for defeat, even though he knows he's headed for the lake of fire where he'll be there forever and ever, Satan is not willing to go down without a fight. Satan is not willing to uh, go lying down. He is, he'll be relentless, and, um, and he will try to the very last day to stop God. Uh, and as you read through the Bible, this is not just a, a thing we read about in this chapter. You will see throughout the entirety of the Bible, um, if you're going through a Bible plan this year, you'll see an ongoing theme of a relentless war going on between good and evil, sin and righteousness, the forces of God, and the forces of Satan. And I think it will become clearer as we go through this chapter. But the second, and I think the more important thing that you'll see in this chapter, is God's Word, which never fails. I think if you could pick a memory verse to put to this, to this chapter, if you could recite something and keep it in your mind, uh, to remember this chapter, you could remind yourself of Isaiah 40, verse 8. And in Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of our God stands forever. This chapter really is a character study of God fulfilling his word faithfully to the nation of Israel. Uh, Whether you've been in church, this is your first time, or whether you've been coming for decades and decades, um, the question at some point will arise in your mind, and that is, is God's word reliable? Can God be trusted? Will his promises that he says, you know, will come to pass, will they come to pass? And the answer to all these things is a resounding yes. Yes, he is reliable. Yes, he can be trusted. Yes, his promises will come to pass. And if you take nothing else from today, I just want you to know that God's word will never fail. The promises of God endure from generation to generation. And if God speaks, if God promises something, he will fulfill it to the very last letter. So... The main theme, again, is the word of the Lord, the promises of God stand forever. And so you say, well, what makes you say that so confidently? Give me evidence. Give me evidence of of a way in which God has fulfilled his promises uh, that's demonstrated that they do stand forever. And uh, to you, I say that, uh, you know, simply uh, look no further than the case study before us in chapter 12 of the nation of Israel and God's promises to her. Just as a very quick summary of the nation of Israel and some of the promises that God's given them. This is not an all-inclusive list, but this is just a summary of God's overall promises to them. If you remember, initially he promised to Abraham a covenant, and then he later reaffirmed this covenant with Moses. And and God, in, in summary of the promise that he gave them, he said that, first of all, Israel would be a special possession of his. He then promised that Israel will be a kingdom of priests to God. He then promised that Israel will be a holy nation. God then promised them that he would fight for them and that he would overcome their enemies. Anyone who came against them, uh, he would fight off for them. Um, God promised to show them mercy and grace. He promised to forgive their sins and to redeem them. And then later on, God promises to David that through his line, through his descendants, he would send a Savior. And not only would it be a Savior, he promises to David that this, this, this Savior, this, this one being born through his line, would also be a king, a king who would establish his kingdom, and there would be no end to this Savior, this king's reign. 
And the one uh, to reign, we come to find, is Jesus Christ. That is the Son of God, that Messiah who is promised. So with these promises in mind that God gave to Israel, let's look at these first six verses in Revelation 12. And I think it will become clear um, about how God is able to fulfill these promises. Revelation 12, verse 1 Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So I'm just going to stop there. This, this chapter is really easiest to be taken in chunks. So we'll stop there and then we'll pick up as we go. But the first three characters we're introduced to is, as I said, the, the woman, the child, and the fiery red dragon. My dad did a very good job going over just an overview of this earlier, um, clarifying the characters. But for those who weren't there or those who need a recap, um, the easiest person to start with is the child that the woman bore. Because it says in verse 5, the child is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And who else throughout the Bible is, is said to have been doing that? Only the person that is mentioned in this specific description is Jesus. And it says that, and there's a couple places it says that. It says it in Psalm chapter 2, which is a messianic psalm. It says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, speaking of Jesus, it says that he shall break them with a rod of iron. He shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And if there was any confusion or if you needed further proof that this was speaking of Jesus, uh, Jesus quotes directly from here when he speaks to the church at Thyatira. He uses, um, he uses this verse, uh, he references this verse in a letter to them um, to indicate that it is him speaking to them. Um, If that wasn't clear enough, at the very end of Revelation, Jesus appears on a white horse in chapter 19, and it says that he goes out to make war against his enemies, and this is the description given of him. In Revelation 19, verse 15, it says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike all the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And so it's clear from these descriptions and these cross-references that the child is speaking of Jesus Christ, that the, the child is identified as, the, the, as Jesus Christ that was born. And so then you, you can look then, okay, well, if that's the child, if the child is Jesus Christ, then who is the woman in labor? And many people would say, well, then that has to be Jesus because it's the mother who bore Jesus. Mary uh, you know, physically bore Jesus, and so... It should should seem like an open and shut case. But then when you look at the description given um, to to describe this woman, it it becomes clear that it's not Mary. Rather, it's actually the nation of Israel. 
One of the reasons I say that is because in nowhere is it mentioned that, no, that Mary fled to the wilderness for 1260 days, as it says in verse 6. Um, the second thing is that it describes the woman saying that there, there appeared a great sign in verse 1. There, a, a great sign appeared in heaven, uh, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a garland of 12 stars. That's a very unusual, very particular description that's given. And then you would think, well, is there another place in the Bible where this description is given? Is there another cross-reference that would somehow tell us who this person is? And actually, there is a place. If you go back all the way back to Genesis, in Genesis 37, verse 9, Joseph, one of the um, sons of Jacob, he has a dream. And he tells this dream um, to his brothers. He says to his brothers in Genesis 37, verse 9, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and eleven stars bow down to me. Essentially, the, the sun and the moon would represent Joseph's mother and father. And the, uh, the eleven stars in this dream he had would represent the, the twelve, or the eleven, I should say, the eleven uh, sons of Jacob. And it, and it showed how ultimately they would come before him and bow down before him uh, in Egypt as they, as they came to, to get food and to, uh, to get enough ration for, for the famine that was going on in the land. Um, but as a whole, all of it combined, now having now twelve stars and the sun and the moon, the totality of all that together um, represents the nation of Israel. These are the sons of Jacob. This is, uh, you know, the mother and father of, of uh, the sons. And in total, this, this vision, this description describes the nation of Israel. Additionally, I could point you to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, which doesn't just describe it as a... Um, it describes the birth of Christ, but it says in there, it says, for unto us... A child is born. Unto us a son is given. And this is, it's true that while Christ came for the whole world, he did come specifically, or it came through specifically, the nation of Israel. This was a savior that was given to the nation of Israel. Um, Jesus was born a Jew. The Bible prophesied that a savior would come through the line of David, and that is exactly what happened. That this child that is described here came through this woman who is the nation of Israel, and it's a fulfillment of God's promises to them, to the nation of Israel, that, this, that through the nation of Israel, a Savior would come. And that child is Jesus Christ. Now, now while God is faithful to his promises in bringing out a child, this Savior who he promised to send, as I said earlier, there is one who openly opposes God and his plans. There is one who will attempt to stop God at any cost. One who will try and stop God's plans for the Jewish nation. And that is, as described in verse 3 and 4, this fiery red dragon. And um, the dragon is described as having seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems on his head. The dragon is described as, as the one who stood before the woman ready to devour her child as soon as it was, as soon as it was born. So who is this fiery red dragon? We didn't read it yet because it comes on later into the chapter, but 
If you skip forward to verse 9, you will see that John tells us very clearly, very plainly, that this is indeed Satan. He says in verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So, there's really no, uh, no difficulty in understanding who this, fiery red dragon in, who this fiery red dragon is. This is indeed uh, Satan. It's the devil. It's Lucifer. Um, this dragon is described, though, as ready to devour this child. As soon as he was born in Israel, what happened? What happened, uh, if, if you remember back to the encounter, the, the story of Jesus being born, we remember that there was, there was wise men who came to Herod. He was the king at the time. And these wise men asked him very earnestly, saying, you know, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. And Herod very deceptively responds, saying, yeah, okay, yeah, go, go search him out. Go tell me where he is that I may also worship him. And if you, you come to find that his intention was not to worship him, Herod felt very threatened by the fact that there was another one who was to be born king. He felt very threatened that his power or his rulership was being challenged. And um, his desire uh, was to kill him. Herod wanted to prevent anyone from taking his throne. And so he orders that all babies, two years and under, are to be slaughtered. But as you see in this description of Satan uh, being the one who is ready to devour the baby, ready to devour this child, it come, you come to find that it actually was Satan who inspired the slaughter of the innocent babies. It was truly the one behind it all. Herod may have ordered the command, but Satan was the one who inspired it. He was the one behind it all. Um, in order to stop God from fulfilling his promises, in order to stop God from fulfilling his, his, uh, his word that said he would send a savior to the nation of Israel. Satan knows these promises all too well, and if God says something will happen like sending a savior, you can bet that Satan will try and do his best to stop it. And so here we have that picture of a dragon, Satan, who is ready to devour the child that was given to Israel. And in verse 5, it says that, as we said earlier, he is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, meaning that Jesus Christ was born king. He wasn't just the Savior, he was a king. Even the wise men in their questioning said, who is he who has been born king of the Jews? Meaning that Jesus is king. And then... It says right after that, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And it's just like, it just skips forward through his earthly ministry. It goes from his birth, through the earthly ministry, through the, the death on the cross, through the, the resurrection, through his ascension. It goes all the way forward to when ultimately Jesus ascends back to heaven with his father. But in this verse alone, we just see, though, God fulfilling his promise, as I said, of sending a Savior, sending a Messiah who would die for the sins of Israel, who would die for the sins, really, of the whole world. Um, but it jumps ahead, and that's very common. You'll see with a lot of prophetic things, it's, it's, it's as if they're all said in one breath, and yet there's a huge gap in between it. And then in the very next breath, um, it jumps ahead again to, uh, from the ascension of Christ all the way, you see in verse 6, it, it talks about his ascension, and then it talks right after that, Israel fleeing to the wilderness. And that's skipping ahead through the whole church age, through the whole first half of the tribulation, 
and it goes right to the last half into this great tribulation period. And, um, but I think the, the purpose it does that is to not necessarily tell every little detail, but just to simply say that God promised something, there was opposition by Satan, and yet God did it anyways. God was able to fulfill his promises. And now let me show you another case in which God promised something and he will fulfill it despite the opposition. And so here we see again now as we go to the, the, the sixth verse, um, this is going to be a period of time where we are now looking at the last three and a half years uh, in the period called the Great Tribulation. And at this point in time, right before this point, Satan will have, through the Antichrist, um, erected an altar of himself in the temple where he will demand worship as God. It will be a time where God will call the nation of Israel to flee. He says in Matthew 24, it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then those who are in Judea flee on the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, no, nor shall ever be. So that's the, the buildup to what this uh, encounter is about to be in verse 6. Then it says in verse 6, we have Israel fleeing to the wilderness. It says in verse 6, then the woman fled to the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Um, and that you know, 1,260 days described here perfectly aligns with this final three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation. A time where Israel will flee to the wilderness where God will protect his people from Satan and from his attempt to wipe them out God will, will not allow Israel to be eradicated. However, there is a, <clears throat> there is a section, though, that we, we can see in prophecy in Zechariah where although Satan will not be able to kill off the entirety of the nation of Israel, there still will be a great slaughter of Israel. God will preserve a remnant of Israel, one-third, but there will be a great slaughter of them. Uh, we read about this in Zechariah 13. It tells us that two-thirds of the Jewish people will be killed during this time. It says um, that, uh, it says here in Zechariah 13, it says, It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, they shall call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Um, so this is dealing with this period of time where there, God will preserve a remnant. One-third of the Jewish people will be delivered, will be uh, rescued out of the, the slaughter that is to come during this time. And God will preserve them. God will not allow Israel to be completely eradicated. God will preserve his people as he promised. Um, God will stand true to his word, 
And Israel will ultimately get to declare that the Lord is their God. So there's a, there's a promise, there's a hope that comes through this, though it is a very, very fierce uh, time for them with the slaughter and the oppression that comes by at the hand of Satan. So that's the first six verses. I'm going to jump ahead now to the next section. Remember I said this is, kind of have to take this piece by piece, but um, the narrative now jumps back from historical point of view to now a time that happens right before the Great Tribulation starts. And it, it, it now describes this fiery red dragon. It describes Satan. It describes him as having seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his heads. But it also, through the description, it, it indicates to us that Satan is the one who works through world empires, specifically through the revived Roman Empire. Satan is described in the exact same way as the Antichrist and as the beast, which is the, the revived Roman Empire. You have such a close description uh, in here, which indicates to us that ultimately... The Antichrist is empowered by Satan. Satan is the one who gives him that power. He's the one who possesses him and, and has him do his bidding. But also, Satan is also controlling the world empire at the time to do as he pleases. Before we get into kind of how Satan will be ultimately uh, cast out, um, you have to remember who Satan is. How did he get to this place where he is now described as a fiery red dragon? Because he wasn't always like that. He was once a wonderful angelic being. He once had a permanent residency in heaven. But what happened? What happened is he became proud. He wanted to exalt himself above God. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wasn't satisfied with the position that God gave him. And so... In a rebellion, he led away a third of the angels. And Satan and his rebels, they were cast out of heaven. And they were unsuccessful. They, they revolted, and it, 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 in turn, it resulted in God kicking them out of heaven. And even though that would seem as though that's the final encounter with Satan, even though it would seem that this is the final dealings with Satan, we read that God, although they are not permanent residents in heaven, they are still given access to come before the throne both day and night um, to accuse the brethren, to, uh, to point the finger at, at God saying that this person did something wrong. And we read about this in Job chapter 2 where Satan accuses Job before God and says, Job doesn't fear you for nothing. He only fears you because you give him things, because you bless him. Bless him and then he'll curse you. Or you take away these things and he'll curse you ultimately. Satan is still the same today. He still accuses the brethren. He still comes before God and he taunts him. He points the finger at Christians saying, that person, David Robertson, look at what he just did. He claims to love you. He claims to, to be Christ-like and look what he just did. Look at the sin. How can you love someone like that? How can you call that person your child when he just did that thing before you? He is reminding God of our sins. He's reminding him of our failures telling God, you ought to send that person to hell. You ought to let that person go because they aren't worthy of your love. As an aside, I do find it quite ironic that Satan, 
appeals to the righteousness of God, while he himself only seeks to do unrighteous things. But as an aside, that, that, it is an ironic statement. But regardless, Satan loves to continue accusing us just as he did in the times of Job. And Jesus, in his response time and time again, will be to Satan that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He can point to his, the prince in his hand. He can point to the, the side that is pierced. It's all evidence that our sins have been paid in full by his blood. All of our sins paid in full. We have been forgiven for every last one. No charge will stick. It doesn't necessarily stop Satan from still pleading his case time and time again, but the same answer will be the same, forgiven and paid for in full by my blood. Romans 8, 33, verse 33 and 34 gives us this reassurance as believers. It says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. We have that hope that there is no charge that will ever stick. There will be nothing that Satan can ever point the finger at, and it will truly stick against us. That God has forgiven us. We have been paid for. Our sins have been paid for in full. And uh, he makes intercession for us daily. So up until this point, up until the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan's been given the ability to go before God, accuse the believers. But after this section, Satan's access to heaven has been cut off. We read about the reason, behind it, the reason behind it being cut off in verse 7 through 9. It says in verse 7 of Revelation 12, A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his archangels, Michael and his angels, sorry, fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast off that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Again, this points to a time where Satan and his angels will have been so thoroughly defeated that they no longer have access to heaven. He will be cast down to the earth, where he will attempt to wreak havoc upon the world for that final three and a half years. And while that is happening to Satan... What happens in heaven is that there is a loud voice of triumph that is heard all throughout heaven. In verse 10 it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who has accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. This announcement of heaven is an announcement of joy. It's an announcement of praising God uh, for the present time, for, what he, for who he is, but also what he is about to accomplish in the future. First, it praises God for the salvation that he's provided. He has provided salvation from the stronghold that Satan once had on our lives. Satan once had a very tight grip on our lives, but to those who know him, Satan no longer controls us. Satan no longer has that hold that he once had. It also praises the Lord, though, for, for coming to the earth, for shedding his blood on the cross. 
while salvation was purchased and won nearly 2,000 years ago, um, we have been, we can praise the Lord because we have been saved from not only the penalty of sin, but also the power that sin once had in our lives. But it also, this, this praise to him also looks forward to the future when we will be saved from the very presence of sin, when we will no longer be on this earth that is filled with sinful thoughts, sinful behaviors, sinful rulers. We look forward to a righteous king, one who will be perfect. We look forward to the day when we will no longer be in the presence of sin. So we praise the Lord for the salvation he's provided, but it also praises him and looks forward to the strength and the power that will be seen when he sets up his millennial kingdom, when he will be reigning for a thousand years. And it praises him even beyond that, looking forward to this eternal state even beyond the thousand-year reign, where believers will be, with his, be in his glorious presence forever, for all eternity. So we praise him for that, but it finally also praises him for the current moment in this period of time, right at the halfway point of the tribulation, rejoicing because Satan, the accuser of our brethren, has been cast out and no longer has access to heaven. The scene then turns from joy in heaven to then the joy that people have on earth uh, in verse 11, and it's really the joy of believers on the earth. It says in verse 11, and they overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Heaven starts off by rejoicing for what's happening um, in heaven, but then it moves forward to what's happening on the earth. Though Satan and his demon hosts are trying to destroy and slaughter all the believers on this earth, he is defeated even in their death. How is that possible? How are they over, able to overcome Satan? How are they able to overcome his demons? It says in here, they overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, meaning that their victory is not based on their own merit, not based on their own works. They are victorious even in death because of their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross by the blood that he shed. The accusations that Satan throws at a believer, ultimately they mean nothing because Christ has paid the penalty that we deserve with his very own blood, with the blood of the Lamb. Though we will daily fall short, though we daily uh, don't always live up to how we should live, though we um, often fall short, we have been made righteous through the work that Christ did on the cross for us. And that really uh, is true of all believers. All accusations that um, Satan brings before God don't hold up because we have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. It says they not only overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb, but by the word of their testimony, meaning that these believers were faithful. They were devoted to Christ in the midst of the persecution that is to come. When they had to decide between taking the mark of the beast, when they had to decide between uh, bowing down and worshiping the devil or not, they chose to hold on to their faith in Christ. They chose that they would rather have a clear and faithful testimony to God than to recant their faith and bow down and worship this wicked one. They chose that they would rather be persecuted, rather be, rather be mocked, rather be harmed. 
They would be faithful to their Lord no matter the cost. They were faithful to their Lord and Savior. And then finally it says here that they did not love their lives to the death. And as we, as we said here that these final three and a half years, um, it will be very costly to be a believer in Christ. You will know that if you're a believer during this time, it's, it's essentially a death sentence. And yet, considering the cost, considering the decision to be made, they would rather die for the sake of Christ than worship the devil. And that is evidence of a true convert. Evidence that the, these men and women had a genuine faith in Christ. Evidence of a genuine transformation. Though they lose their life, it will not destroy their faith. And for this reason, for this very reason, it says it in verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Rejoice, because not only has Satan been defeated in heaven, but he's also been defeated on the earth. For those who truly know Christ, he can do nothing to them. For those who don't know Christ, for those who are unbelievers, still remaining though on the earth, there is a a warning. There is a warning about what Satan is about to do um, to them. And it says it in the final part of this verse. It says, Woe, though, to the inhabitants of the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. The devil has, like I said, three and a half years. That's it. It's a short time. He will attempt during this time to deceive as many as he can. He will attempt to receive worship as God. He will attempt to pull people away from the truth to follow his lie. It will be a difficult time, but it will be a particularly difficult time for the Jews as Satan is going to turn his attention uh, and all of his energy, really, into destroying them, into wiping them out entirely. We read about this in verse 13. It says, Now the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, so, now, when the dragon saw he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Satan will attempt now to completely slaughter the nation of Israel. And this is nothing new. Satan has always been, as I said, opposed to the plans of God. Though he tries it in different ways to stop God, he will fail every time. If God has said something will happen, it will come to pass. I just want to to recap, because in case it's not clear in your mind, this is an ongoing battle that has taken place for centuries, since the beginning of time, really. And I just want to highlight Satan's opposition towards God, but specifically, though, towards the Jewish people. We'll just start off with the Garden of Eden. Satan initially tempted Adam and Eve to go against the command of God, which started off by leading leading them into sin, and sin entered into the world. From there, though, we look specifically at the Jewish people. Um, Moses, as he was in Egypt, um, Satan inspired Pharaoh to slaughter the male children of Israel, um, and if he was successful, he would have killed Moses. He would have, helped, he would have helped to kill the one who God would use ultimately to deliver the children of Israel out of their bondage, out of their slavery. He then um, attempts later, when they reach the promised land, Satan uses foreign women 
from the neighboring areas to draw the Israelites away from the truth of God. They intermarry, which God forbidden them. He told them, don't do that. Don't intermarry with uh, foreign women. And yet Satan used that uh, in an attempt to draw them away from him so that they would adopt practices and they would begin worshiping worthless gods. They would begin sacrificing. Actually, they would sacrifice their children to the gods of these other nations. And again, it is exactly what Satan wanted. Satan wanted the worship of the true God to be drawn away. He wanted to pull them away from the truth. Uh, You could also um, look back at how there was a promise of a Savior who would be given to Israel through the line of David. And do you ever notice as you read through the Psalms, as you read through 1 and 2 Samuel, do you notice how many times Satan uh, Satan tries to kill off David? Look at the attempts of Saul. Look at the attempts of the other uh, neighboring enemies who just try relentlessly to kill David. That is not by coincidence. That is not by, by chance. Satan is using these people, pursuing David, uh, attempting to kill off the one who through his line would come a savior. Uh, and yet, God is faithful. God preserved David and allowed for the Messiah to come through his line, allowed the king to come through his line. If you want to jump forward to the book of Esther, Satan inspired Haman uh, a plot that would try to eradicate the Jews entirely. And yet God intervened and allowed Esther to be the person who who stopped the plot from taking place and preserved the Jewish people during this time. We read earlier about Satan inspiring Herod to kill off the babies during that time to prevent Christ from being born into this world, to prevent him from um, coming into this world. And, And yet, God protected his son. God would not allow Satan to to do his will. And um, then you look at Satan during the days of Jesus. You think about his earthly ministry. How many times did the crowds want to stone him or suddenly grab him and take him away to be killed? And yet, miraculously, he slips away or he won't be caught because it's not the timing that God had for it yet. And yet, Time and time again, there are these attempts to get rid of Christ. Also, Satan tries to go against God's will by tempting him. He tempts him in the wilderness and says, you know, throw yourself off this pinnacle, throw yourself off the temple, bow down and worship to me, and I'll give you the kingdom early. I'll I'll let you have the entire world just bow down to me, attempting him to do his own will. And yet... God will not do things that are according to the will of Satan. He's only going to do things according to the will of his Father. Again, I could point you to even the words of Peter, where Peter expresses ideas that Satan himself would have endorsed. He says, when the Lord says that I'm going to be crucified and then I'm going to raise myself up, or be raised again to the third day, Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And yet you see here again, the Lord rebukes Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Even surrounding the cross, the unfairness, the the cruelty of it all, the injustice of it all, Satan ultimately inspired even Judas to betray um, his his Lord and Savior, or the one who who ultimately would die. Uh, And yet... Judas 
uh, betrayed him. Satan in inspired him to do so. Um, and yet, despite all that, despite Satan thinking that he is one, despite Satan looking at Jesus on the cross, thinking that he has been defeated, despite, Ju despite uh, Jesus dying, through his death, he was victorious. Through his death, he was fulfilling prophecy. Through his death, he was fulfilling the promises he made of sending a Savior who would die for their sins. And Satan was defeated through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as you look back in history, you see promises given to Israel and then the immediate opposition. Promises given by God and Satan's attempt to stop it. At every turn, we see Satan trying to prevent God from fulfilling the promises he made to this nation. One of the, one of the promises that is to come, though, is in the future, he says in Romans 11, that all Israel will be saved. All believing Israel will be saved. Zechariah 12 speaks of a time in verse 10 where it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for, the only, for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. There is going to be a great revival in the future for Israel, and God will save Israel just as he has promised. And so, as you look at the track record of Satan going after God, if God has promised this to Israel, it should be no surprise to us that during this time, Satan will begin attacking Israel and going after them uh, to stop God from saving and redeeming this people, to prevent him from setting up his kingdom. And um, he will go to great lengths to eliminate them. But as I said before, no matter the opposition that Satan brings, God's word will stand forever. His promises will come to pass. His promises will endure from generation to generation. Satan here, though, is going to make three final attempts to kill off this Jewish people. His attempt to persecute them um, will begin when the abomination of desolation uh, is, is put in place, and um, that's the halfway point of the tribulation. In this time, as we said, the people of Israel will flee to the mountains because of the great persecution of Satan, because of the fierce persecution unlike anything they've ever seen before. So he initially goes after them, they flee to the wilderness, and it says here that even though Satan begins attacking them, it says in verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. This is Satan's attempt. He's going after them. He attempts to kill them off, attempts to slaughter them as a nation, but God delivers them to safety. How exactly does he do this? Um, we may not fully ever understand until the time comes, but he will allow a remnant of the Jewish people to escape the destructive powers of Satan. And he is going to, to have them flee to the wilderness where they will be given food, water, all the nourishments that they would need in the wilderness for a time, that is one year, and times, that's two years, and a half a time, that's a half a year. So three and a half years altogether, when you add up all those numbers, three and a half years, 
uh, total, which is the entirety of the Great Tribulation. God, for that time, will keep them safe from the presence of the serpent. The question is, you know, how exactly is this going to happen? What are these two wings of a great eagle? Some would speculate that this could be an aircraft of some sort. They could speculate it's some plane. Um, I definitely believe it is some figurative language because even if you think back to the deliverance that God had of the, um, of the uh, children of Israel when they came out of Egypt, God tells Moses and, and reminds him to tell the children of Israel, remember how I, I delivered you? And this is how he describes his deliverance in Exodus. He says, um, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So I firmly believe this is figurative language. That is not a literal eagles' wings. But at some, in some way, some fashion, God is going to miraculously, just like he did with the children of Israel, bringing them out of uh, Egypt. Um, I believe in the same manner, in a miraculous uh, display of power. God is going to bring the children of Israel out to the wilderness to safety and um, ultimately um, use, use it where it'll be a place where he, they cannot be harmed by Satan. Um, you would think, though, that that would be it. Satan would say, okay, I lost. I wasn't able to get to them. God protected them. So I guess I'll leave them alone. But that's not the case. Satan is relentless, as I said. Satan will make a second attempt for their lives. It says, you read about the second attempt in verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Again, Satan is at it again, attempting to kill God's promised people. If, if Satan can kill God's chosen people, then Satan must believe somehow that God's eternal plans will have been thwarted. So here we have Satan spewing water out of his mouth to drown the people of Israel. Some would suggest that this is a, uh, a figurative water. Some would say that this isn't water, but rather it's an army. It's a, a flood of armies that comes to carry away the children of Israel. Um, it's possible. Um, you know, there's a lot of figurative speech being used here, such as the dragon, the woman, the eagle's wings. It, it's, it's quite possible. Um, Personally, I, I believe that it refers to an actual flood. Um, I believe it's an actual attempt by Satan to drown out his people. I, I look back on previous attempts of Satan, and I would think that this is not the first time he has used water to try and drown um, the children of Israel. Um, you can look back to Pharaoh in, in Egypt, how he commanded that the, the children were to be thrown into the river to drown them. And... Um, this would not be a unique way of Satan uh, in attempting to kill off Israel. Um, how exactly will Satan do this? This is just pure speculation. This is just my, uh, my best guess, so don't, don't be too dogmatic about it. But um, many have speculated this as well, but um, it is quite possible that you could take water from sea level and divert it through, whether it be pipelines or what have you, to a lower elevation and you could basically flood the wilderness with seawater. That is one explanation of how he might do it. How he does it, we don't know. The end result is that Satan will attempt to drown the Jewish people. That's what we see Satan doing. But again, I want you to see that while this is Satan's opposition to God, 
What is God doing? How is God fulfilling his promises? And I just want you to see that God promised Israel that he would keep them safe in these exact moments. Um, This is where I want you to see this shining through, the faithfulness of God, that his word does endure forever, that it will stand forever. God actually made a promise to Israel in Isaiah 59. It says in verse 19, When the enemies come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up his standard against him. So now, what does God do in response to this? Will God be true to his word? Will God answer Israel when the enemy comes against them like a flood? We read in verse 16, But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the great dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Yet again, God is faithful to his word. He causes the earth to open up, swallow the flood that was sent to kill off Israel. Again, proof of the reliability of God's word. If God speaks something, if he says something is going to happen, you can bet on it. And in miraculous fashion, he saves Israel um, when Satan attempts to unleash his fury against them. God will protect his people. God will not allow Satan to destroy them. And as a result, uh, Satan is not too happy about it. It says in verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan suffered humiliating defeat at the hand of God, unable to stop the plans of God, unable to stop God from fulfilling his word, unable to beat him. Satan suffers defeat here, And so he now, in a third attempt, will now go after the Jews who remained in the land, those who did not flee to the wilderness. Satan will attempt to to kill off the remainder of them. He will make war against them. He will slaughter them. He will kill as many as two-thirds of the Jewish people, as it says in Zechariah. And um, Satan specifically will go after those who will not bow down, who will not worship the beast, who refuse to get the mark of the beast, who refuse to submit to him, those who choose to demonstrate the reality of their faith rather than bow down to to Satan. And um, as we said, they'll be persecuted, they'll be killed for their faith, but ultimately for these believers, death has no sting for them. Death is not the end for that believer, but rather it's just the beginning of a wonderful bliss in heaven with the Lord forever knowing they'll forever be with the one who died for their sins. They'll forever be with the one who forgave them of all their iniquities. And this all brings us back to what we started with in the beginning, that all throughout the Bible there is this recurrent theme of the forces of God and the forces of Satan. Satan's attempt to thwart the Bible and God's plans. And I just wanted to, in, in the closing chapters of Joshua, I just wanted to quote this from here, because Joshua, in there, God was faithful in fulfilling his promise, of bringing them to this promised land. And and it, and it just summarizes God's faithfulness. In Joshua 21, this is a summary of the faithfulness of God's word. It says, Not a single one of all the good promises the Lord had given to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Everything he had spoken came true. And that will be true in this day too, that every last promise that God has for Israel will come to pass. Not one of them will be left unfulfilled. Everything he has spoken is true. Everything he has spoken will come to pass. 
both in the history of, of God's promises and in the future of everything he has promised. And he will protect his people Israel despite the fierce opposition. So what does that mean for us? It means that God's word and his promises will endure forever. Other people in your lives, they, they, they change their mind on a daily basis. But God's word remains the same. Today, if you read a promise in God's word, if you read something um, of a promise, it can be trusted. If you're an unbeliever seeking to understand the Bible, to understand if God's word is true, look no further than the promises of the nation of Israel. Look at how God fulfilled his promises to them, despite the opposition. Though they are the smallest nation, God blessed them and gave them the promises, and he fulfilled them in sending the Son, Jesus Christ, who paid for their sins and for the sins of the whole world. And because of that, salvation is now available to you today. Salvation is freely offered to all people, to have your sins forgiven, to be made whole, before God. And if you have a relationship with God, it means that when you read a promise in the Bible of God's love, of God's power, of God's care, of God's um, tenderness towards you, we can stand on those promises with full assurance in it. The fact that his word is reliable assures us that the promise that he has made of him helping us in a time of need or him giving us comfort and peace when we go through trials they will all come to pass. The promises of no one being able to snatch us out of his hand is a promise that we can cling to, knowing that nothing will change that. The promise he's given us of eternal life will come to pass. Aren't you glad that God is not like us who change on a daily basis? I'm thankful that we have a God that we can trust, a God that has a word that will stand forever. I want to just praise the Lord that his promises never fail and that his word will endure forever. Praise the Lord. Lord, we just thank you today just for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this, this great chapter you have here, Lord, that shows clearly your, your faithfulness to Israel as well as us, Lord. Just, Lord, you constantly fulfill your word. You constantly answer despite all the, the, uh, the challenges that Satan tries to bring. Lord, we're just so grateful for your word. Lord, we're thankful for the truths in it and that, Lord, we can trust you. You are a faithful God, and Lord, we thank you for that. We pray all these things in your name.